coming up with ideas for positive innovation isn't that difficult. The hard part is coming up with positive innovation that has zero to very few negative externalities. Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Laurence van Eerlichem, and I'm very excited to introduce advisor, keynote speaker, and catalyst April Rinney. She is very passionate about the subject of the future of work, the new economy, and global citizenship. Today, April and I chose to talk about innovation's blind spots and specifically about how we often assume that innovation is inherently positive, but new is not automatically better and it's really important that we are aware of this bias. So April, welcome. Hello. Maybe you can start the conversation by telling our audience a bit about yourself, uh, your many travels, your unconventional career and the things that brought you here uh, where you are today. Sure. Well, I'm delighted to join. Thank you for having me. And by way of introduction, today I am an independent advisor. I'm working with startups and governments and investors and think tanks, really looking at new business models that are driven by technology but affect how we live, how we work, how we learn, how we lead, and so forth. But prior in my career, I spent many years focused on global development, so looking at emerging and developing economies and how do we innovate and build business models that are appropriate for the economically active poor. Um, I'm also trained as a lawyer, so I spent some years practicing law and I still really like issues around public policy. Uh, and to your point, I've always been a traveler, I guess a bit of a globe trotter, and um, am constantly curious, not just about cultural diversity, but also how do different places do things differently? I mean, we all have the same needs as humans, but you find incredible diversity, inspiration, and even different forms of innovation when you look far beyond your own backyard. And so I'm interested in sort of looking at that globally and then connecting links and dots and people and ideas and, and helping people and organizations um, create a better future. Okay. Um, so to circle back to the part about positive innovation, um, I want to start off on a very concrete and practical note. So could you give maybe an example or two of what you would consider positive innovation and an example of, for lack of a better word, negative innovation? Sure. Well, I'm actually probably going to tackle those together because when we think about it, the definition of innovation means simply something new. It doesn't necessarily say if that thing is inherently good or bad or, you know, it doesn't judge in that regard. And so innovation has existed throughout time. And I would say that by and large, most innovations have very positive implications often, not always, but often, and can have also negative implications or the potential to do harm. And really that's about looking at things at what is the intention of the user? What is the intention of the creator? What are some of the unintended consequences that we might not have thought about on day one? And so, you know, an, an easy example is like a knife, right? A knife, that, that was an innovation when it first was developed, you know, millennia ago. We use knives in our daily lives and we trust that people know how to use them appropriately. And then a knife can also be used to kill someone. Is that good or bad? I mean, it just shows you kind of something that's innovative. So you've got knives or you've got something like nuclear energy, right? Nuclear energy is wildly innovative in terms of its power and it can be harnessed for good and provide clean energy, et cetera, et cetera. And also it can be used for incredible harm to humanity. And so I think more recently, as we start looking at issues or innovation around digital technologies, the smartphone, data, big data, or something like automation, right? Being able to automate a task, particularly, you know, something that used to be dangerous to do, or in some cases, impossible to do, that is wildly helpful. But now some of the unintended consequences may be, and what happens if you're the human whose livelihood is disrupted by that particular automation, you know, that, that innovation. When you think about it, there's a tension in most innovations. I would say, you know, those that come closest to pure positive innovation, a lot of those relate to things around like human health, 
innovations that help us live better, live longer, medicines, things like that, right? But those two, if they're in the wrong hands, then we also have things like viruses, et cetera, et cetera, that could also be used for harm. Like you said, you could really say that about every invention, like let's say the internet, when it just came through, people were talking about how it would change communication forever and collaboration and, and knowledge and how information flows. But there's always this dark side too, like we use it now to, to manipulate people uh, into voting a certain way. There's the privacy issues. So it's always very difficult to know upfront when you innovate something or when you invent something, like what impact will it have? Will it have a good impact or a negative impact? So it's really, we can't really say that innovation is positive or negative, but the intent should be positive. Or, or what do you think? It, so I think a lot of this revolves around intentions and trust, which are somewhat related, as well as unintended consequences that no one can necessarily predict on day one, but part of the challenge is how do you establish and launch and grow a system or a service or a product or an, an innovative whatever it may be, but at the outset have peripheral vision that is quite broad and allows you to imagine and do what we might think of as scenario planning for what could happen. You know, a lot of times when we launch something new, something innovative, we have our best case scenario mindset on, right? And I've done a lot of work around the internet and have worked with some of the founders of the internet in those early days. And in fairness, I think most of us would go back to 1989 and say, there was incredible potential for connectivity. And you think about the world in 1989 with the Berlin Wall, et cetera, et cetera, and the need and the potential and the opportunity for greater connectivity and fewer barriers and borders in the world was enormous, right? So it was easy to see things in that glass half full way. What we didn't do, and not just the internet, but I think time after time after time, we don't in the early stages necessarily run through the, well, what is the worst case scenario here? And are we putting in place systems or procedures or questions to ask or conversations to be had early that help prevent that worst case scenario from happening down the road? And I think, you know, on the one hand, it's quite natural. In my work with startups, there is often this sense of, yes, we get that something might happen. There might be a worst case out there. But in the early stages, you really don't want to focus on that because that kind of kills the business model. It kills the enthusiasm. It kills the energy that's being built around this new thing. But the challenge is that by the time you actually need to address some of those challenges, some of those blind spots, it's often too late if you haven't done it at the outset. So I think a lot of this is about our mindset and the questions we're willing to ask and the challenges we're willing to surface in the early stage, not to kill the innovation, but to make sure that we're building the, again, innovation with greatest potential to maximize the bright spots and minimize the blind spots. Mm -hmm. So you talked about this, doing this scenario planning and, and really thinking about the worst case scenario. How should people go about that? Like you say, they have a great idea. They are super excited. They are focused on developing it, making it better for customers, getting it down to the market, but not especially on ooh, what could really go wrong with this product or service. How would you advise people to incalculate that and introduce this into the process of innovation, this, this scenario planning? Sure, so I don't know that there's one recipe or that it's a one-size-fits-all solution. And it's also not super complicated in terms of, this is oftentimes a lot of post-its on a lot of walls, uh, you know, in a lot of brainstorming sessions, but early on where we have team meetings about how to develop a product or different specs or different processes, etc. But we don't necessarily have a lot of brainstorm sessions around what could possibly go wrong and allow our imaginations to run wild in that regard. And, you know, just as one example, and I'm not calling this out for any particular reason other than that it's something I'm thinking a lot about these days, you go back 10 years ago 
and the advent or the growth, I would say, of car sharing and ride sharing and ride hailing. And, you know, Uber was founded in spring 2009. It's now 10 years old. Lyft is now seven years old. So go back to when these companies were being founded. Right. And at the time, it was like, we want to help people not have to own cars. We want to help them get from point A to point B much more easily, more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all very positive things, right? There are economic benefits. There are environmental benefits. There, in the early days, there were social benefits where you would talk to your driver, you know, which still happens to some degree, but far less than in the past. Those were the scenarios we were mapping, right? And they all look pretty good. We were not envisioning that, in fact, ride hailing in some cities, particularly where access to transit is quite poor, that ride hailing could actually lead to more cars on the road. People who might have otherwise walked or ridden their bike now get in cars. People who didn't have public transit before now get in a car. And we see this now 10 years later where many cities, as a result of ride hailing, which was supposed to reduce traffic and reduce CO2 emissions, in some cases can be shown to exacerbate or even increase it. I go, okay, well, what should those teams have done? They needed to play out many more scenarios than they actually did. Because it is true that when done responsibly and when done with the whole ecosystem in mind and when done in partnership with public transit authorities, for example, ride hailing is a fabulous thing. Absolutely fabulous. And it does have the intended consequences of reducing car ownership and encouraging more sustainable transport. But when this happens in isolation and, you know, not in partnership necessarily with governments or public transit authorities, etc., then it can go sideways or even in the opposite direction. So if I were an Uber or a Lyft, they needed to be having not just mapping out those scenarios, but actually trying to partner with public transit long ago. Now, they would say we couldn't because we were deemed to be, you know, not authorized to operate in many of the markets that we entered. And that's where you sort of see this tension between business interests and oftentimes public policy needs or the public good. But what they really needed to do was take a more holistic, ecosystem-based approach 10 years ago when they got started, as opposed to now having to try to remedy a lot of these challenges that we could call unintended consequences. But, you know, if you unwind the clock, you can see how this happened. I understand what you're saying, but that sounds so difficult to be able to see upfront what the impact could be in, in five to 10 years, but the negative impact. Don't you agree? I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying if we're going to launch innovations which have enormous potential upside, we have a responsibility to our company, to our customers, to society at large to make sure that we're developing it with as few blind spots as possible. So I would never profess that this is easy, but it is part of our responsibility as entrepreneurs, innovators, and to some degree, you know, as customers and leaders and policymakers, et cetera, to bring that full picture to the table. Okay. So you already talked a bit about it, but what are for you all the different facets of positive innovation? Like it positive for the customers, for the environment, for the employees, who should exactly benefit from it? Well, that's always a bit of a balancing act because, you know, you, you do want innovation that benefits your customers. But if it harms society as a whole, is that, you know, you have to make that trade off. You have to do that calculus. Um, there are a few different ways that I look at innovation. And I would say, you know, here, much of my work has been done in the sharing economy, collaborative economy, on-demand economy. So business models based on access over ownership and looking at new ways that we can rethink ownership. And on the one hand, I will typically run business models through a sort of couple different frameworks or processes where you look at, well, what are the kinds of benefits? How high do we score on these different benefits? Some of them being you know, economic benefits. So can people save money? Can people earn income in new ways? You know, that, the, both of those are good things. Environmental benefits, is this better for the environment? Are we using resources more sustainably? Community benefits, social benefits, are we bringing people in connection with one another? Are we forging new relationships? Practical benefits, do we have more convenience, more choice, more flexibility? All of those are sort of things you can rank or measure. But then there's a separate framework which is you know, related, but I think may hit closer to what you're talking about now. And I think of that as more concentric circles. So what are the benefits that accrue to an individual? And that individual, in the first case, would be a customer. 
in the next case might be a family member of that customer. <laughs> you know, in the next case might be, as we zoom out, might be someone who lives in the same community as that customer. But then we, then we go from there into what might be the benefits for a company or the business ecosystem. And then at the broadest level, what might be the benefits for society as a whole? And that includes the environment, mother nature, and so forth. And so what you're trying to do is maximize the benefits at all of those levels. Now, obviously, you can't always please everyone with everything all the time. It's never been that way. So ultimately, you get down to the balancing act between which stakeholder groups I don't want to say matter most, but which do you need to keep top of mind? And I think one of the challenges that we're facing today is that for the last 50 to 100 years, certainly in the era of mass consumption and a focus on individuals, where we've really said if an innovation is helpful for individuals, that's just a good thing. And, you know, by and large, that statement I would agree with. But we're running into challenges within which it may be good for individuals, but if it's bad for the environment over time, how do we readjust that balancing act? Because it will be a good thing for individuals until the environment runs out of resources, until the environment can no longer replenish and sustain itself. At that point, that's going to be bad for the environment, but by default, it's bad for all individuals as well. So where do we draw that? There's not one hard and fast bright line rule where we do that. I think that the challenge and what we're starting to see happen a little bit more, but not nearly enough, is businesses starting to take into account those broader societal and environmental impacts to their innovations that they're developing where they've primarily had individuals and customers front and center. Mm-hmm. So you talk about this tension between what's good for the individual and what's good for the environment or, or the broader system. But you could say also that it's this tension between short-term and long-term because what's good for the individual is mostly good for the individual on, on the short-term, while what's good for the system takes a longer while, like the environment. It's more of, of a long-term impact. What do you think about that, this tension between the short-term and, and the long-term? Uh, I absolutely agree, and I'm glad you bring it up because I think the short-termism versus long-term view is chronic, and it's sort of endemic in many different systems that we're looking at right now. I think about going back to something like cars. There's recently articles written on, was the car actually a mistake, <laughs> right? And you go, well, I don't know about that. You know, In the short term, Cars have been wildly helpful for transportation, for access, mobility. I mean, the car has transformed the world, literally. But now that innovation has run so far in the other direction in which the assumption is is that every individual would own a car or two cars or three cars or five cars and be able to drive it and that we would have a population that continues to grow. And, you know, the long-term view is anything but optimistic if we take that original individual car ownership, car-centric vision. Also, if we look at this from an economic point of view, one of the things that I really struggle with, and many others do as well, I know, we have put so much emphasis on short-term profits and you know, quarterly returns are what drives so much value, business thinking, leadership decisions, etc as opposed to where does a company need to be or be positioning itself 5, 10, or even 20 years down the road and investing for that. There are no easy solutions, but I do think, you know, it's quite interesting. There is a difference between, broadly speaking, the U.S. and Europe versus China, Japan, Korea, and other economies in the East, where China, Japan, Korea, they do long-term planning, and they will invest in something that may not bear fruit for 50, 60, or 100 years. They're okay with that. And I feel like that is, relatively speaking, comparative advantage for those economies. I think the U.S. and Europe, and the U.S. in particular, is very much at the other end of the spectrum. Everywhere thinks to some degree along the lines of election cycles, right? I can only invest in so much as might help me get reelected. But this notion of we just need for continued growth on our traditional metrics of GDP and quarterly earnings, we're showing more and more that that way of thinking and that way of modeling is unsustainable, but also what good is a short-term win if long-term 
we're actually losing. Short term, you win the battle. Long term, you lose the war. Um, that's a very poor analogy here, but I do want to tease it out because there's actually a lot about business that can be tied back to terms of warfare, which is you know a separate conversation, but interesting in its own right. <laughs> It's really interesting that you started talking about the East. We go on, on innovation tours to China and I've been there myself. And you talked about it when you talked about the tension between short term and long term. But what's really interesting is that in China, they are more focused indeed on the long term. But you could also say that the West is more individualistic, while China and Japan uh, and, and other Eastern cultures are a lot more based on uh, focused on the collective. So. In fact, the collective impact and, and long-term and, and individual impact and short-term are really closely knitted together. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up. That was where my head was going as well. The sort of me versus we, the short-term versus long-term. Um, and you're right. There is a much greater sense historically and culturally around the community and the collective and individuals exist in relationship to that as opposed to individuals at the front and center and communities are built by individuals. So the same dynamics exist, but are you beginning from the point of the individual is the unit of analysis or the, you know, the unit of importance or is the community the unit of analysis and importance? One interesting thing, and I've done quite a bit of work in China, in Japan, in Korea, across Asia and South Asia over the years, one interesting dynamic, and I don't know how it's going to play out, but the rise of the emerging middle class globally and the vast majority of the emerging middle class is in Asia. East Asia, South Asia, also in, in Africa, but the vast majority, 60%, I believe, the global middle class is going to double in the next decade. 60% of those will be in Asia. Now, what happens when you have greater economic wealth is that you're able to purchase things that you couldn't purchase before. You're able to do things you couldn't do before, which largely, you know, there's a certain, not individualism, but you can make individual decisions to do things and buy things and have things that you couldn't in the past. A hanging question that I have is, as this emerging middle class emerges, largely in these cultures that have a very strong focus on the we and the collective and the community, Will that greater economic power be driven into more community-based solutions, community-based platforms, community-based investments, or will there be a shift towards more of it being individual? I don't know. I would love to see this greater economic wherewithal invest even more in community-based solutions, but we don't know. I'm, I'm watching this space, but you bring up an excellent point that I 100% agree with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we talked about uh, the long-term view. Do you have maybe an example for us of a company with a, a long-term view that you really love? I know it's always difficult asking about examples, but <laughs> let's try. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there are... I'm going to answer the question. I don't want to say with another question, but I, I do think we should challenge ourselves a little bit. Challenge ourselves around our assumptions for how long something should exist where you look historically, and I wish I had the data in front of me, but I don't. So I'm going to estimate that 50 years ago, the average lifetime of a company in the Fortune 500, for example, was something like 60 years, 70 years. It was quite a long time. The average today is less than 20 years. So companies' existence At, along with you know, the pace of change, increasing, everything's changing more rapidly, so are company lifetimes. Now, I love thinking about building something that is useful and helpful for the future and for forever. But the world that I think many of us live in today and more people are living in, a world that is more virtual and digital than physical, a world that is more hyper-connected than rooted in one place, a world that is highly dynamic and emergent, much more so than fixed or, you know, command and control top-down structures. All of that leads us to kind of question, what does it mean to build for the super long term? In my opinion, it doesn't mean building a building or building a service that is static and exists in perpetuity. It means building the most emergent, 
impermanent, emergent, but flexible system that you can. And that's one thing that I find is very difficult for companies across the board, you know, whether they were established 100 years ago or 10 years ago or two years ago, you know, how do you build something that is innately adaptable, innately resilient? I'm not convinced that we need to build something that lasts forever. We need to build something that catalyzes something much greater that can continue to innovate and iterate and adapt to society and humanity and the world over time. Mm -hmm. Indeed, when I was asking the question, I was talking about a long-term mindset and indeed not about long-term services or products, because especially today, it's not possible to build something that will stay the same for 10 to 20 years. It, it doesn't work that way. But indeed, I was talking about the mindset to be so flexible, to keep things permanently adapting to your customers and to your environment. So um, true. You talk a lot about sharing economy. What role do you see this new type of economy playing when it comes to making innovation more positive? Kind of goes back to some of what I was talking about earlier, which is at its core, if you think about the difference between sharing something and owning something, the sharing economy in its original conception is a really good thing. When you and I share something as opposed to each of us having to own it together, there are economic benefits. We both can save money. There are environmental benefits. We're using resources more efficiently, more sustainably. We're getting to know one another because we have to, we have to be in relationship to share this thing, etc., etc. So whether that is a car or space, an office, um, clothes, sporting goods, like the list goes on in terms of assets that can be shared, it's generally a really good thing. Now, the challenge that we've faced, and I think partly the sharing economy has become far more than what perhaps it was originally intended to be, perhaps how many people thought it would be an attractive term to use, the sharing economy has morphed into something far more than just sharing. Some people say that it should be more accurately called the rental economy or the access economy or the on-demand economy, but you know, when you can get access to something that you need rather than um, owning it outright. And there we're really breaking it down, you know, issues of cost, issues of convenience, issues of sustainability, all of which point in a very positive direction for the sharing economy over time. So getting to your point, on the one hand, the sharing economy is slated for more growth. People are discovering that having to own everything all the time, whether or not you're using it, it's expensive, it's cumbersome, it's wasteful. So there are a lot of areas in our lives where for the last many years, we've assumed we've had to own something. We're learning day in and day out that that's just not the case. The challenge we face is that there are a lot of businesses and platforms out there today that are calling themselves the sharing economy or calling themselves shared. But if you really dig into what they're doing, I'm not sure what's shared. I call this phenomenon share washing. You might remember the term greenwashing from years ago where people said, oh, you know, we're a green business, we're, we're good for the environment. Whereas in fact, all they had done is painted their delivery truck green. Share washing these days is that many sharing economy companies aren't truly about that original ethos of sharing. So what does that mean? Moving forward, the sharing economy in its true form is slated for additional growth. You know, at the core, yes, sharing economy is an innovation that when harnessed responsibly is a very good thing for society. But we've started to expand that definition to the point that sometimes it's hard to really, really know what we're looking at. You talked about share washing. Can you maybe give some examples of companies that we think about as examples of the sharing economy, but are in fact not? Yeah, I guess, you know, we can probably start with the example that most people would think about first, which is Uber. <laughs> so Uber would say that it's ride sharing. You're looking at a car that would have been parked and idle otherwise, and you're, you're helping someone get from point A to point B and helping that person not have to own a car you can see how there's a piece of the original Uber ethos that might have been seen as a shared ride. But today, the majority of Uber rides are, you know, a lot, I don't know exactly how many, but many drivers are leasing cars specifically for the purpose of driving for Uber. So these are not cars they would have just owned and parked on the street. They wouldn't have owned these cars at all. 
they're being used to transit people who otherwise might have taken public transit, which is actually truly shared transportation. You know, and this car would not have been on the road at all otherwise by either the driver or the passenger. I don't think this is ride sharing. If you look at the value chain of what's happening, there's very little in that transaction that is shared. Is Uber part of the sharing economy? Well, ride sharing is, but and, and what I would call ride sharing, which both Uber and Lyft offer. For Uber, it's Uber Pool. And for Lyft, it's called Lyft Line, where you are literally sharing a ride with other passengers in a vehicle. So the car is full. It's not just you going from point A to point B. Uber Pool and Lyft Line are absolutely part of ride sharing and the sharing economy by association. When it's simply you in a transaction to hail a ride on demand to get from point A to point B and that car has been leased for the purpose of driving, that I just don't see as part of the sharing economy. It's very hard to justify why it would be. So that's one example of how nuanced this becomes, right? Airbnb, similar thing. Home sharing where you're staying in someone's home, absolutely part of the sharing economy. They're using underutilized space in their home that wouldn't have been used otherwise. They're sharing it with someone else. But insofar as it's a corporate short-term let that has just been you know, posted by a business online, I'm not sure that's the sharing economy. It certainly doesn't feel like it to me. To keep the topic of course and positive innovation and positive intention, a lot of things like um, Uber, of course, will, will probably uh, change when the self-driving cars will hit the road. Self-driving cars, we see this as positive because it will give us a better experience, more comfort. We will be able to, I don't know, sleep in cars while they are driving or, or work in our cars or, or, or look at a movie in our cars. So for the The consumer, the individual, it seems really nice, but if we look at it, maybe it could mean that there will be a lot more cars on the road with a lot more individuals inside cars instead of people sharing rides. What do you think about that? I love that you bring this up because, again, it goes right back to issues of intention, issues of unintended consequences, but also your perspective. Where do you find yourself vis-a-vis your relationship to your car today, a potential autonomous vehicle in the future? So I would say, you know, driverless vehicles, again, lots of positive innovation implications. To your point, you know, we don't need to own cars, much better for the environment, lower accident rates, right? I mean, traffic fatalities are huge. You might have heard of FASES, F-A-S-E-S, which is fleets of autonomous electric shared vehicles. I don't know if I got that order quite right, but it's not just autonomous, it's electric and shared. If you can get those three things working in tandem, this is a win-win-win all around in terms of shared use, autonomous, electric, Good, good on every metric. I would say with one big caveat, and to go back to what I was saying earlier about perspective, which is lots of positive innovation implications of autonomous vehicles, but what if you're a driver and your livelihood may go away? You know, it is an unintended consequence. I don't think anyone who's developing autonomous vehicles wishes to put people out of work. That's not the general gist of it. What you're trying to do is improve productivity, efficiency, safety, etc. But in the process, you have a lot of drivers who could be out of work. And, you know, in every country in the world, drivers, people who are involved in transportation, are one of the largest single percentages of a workforce. So that's a really interesting dynamic intention. Now, going back to what you were saying, are we just going to have more people riding around in cars? Well, if we design a system that encourages individual use of cars... Yes, we could very easily find ourselves in a system with, you know, gridlock of cars, so to speak. But if we design where at the center of what we try to develop are these phases, then actually what we get to, you know, numbers, the projections that are out there show that if done right with this ecosystem fleet-based model in mind, that we will need somewhere between 7 and 17% of the number of vehicles on the road 
that we would need today. And that there are many people and organizations doing research on this out there. There's a gentleman named Tony Seba who has done some incredibly interesting work around these phases. So those are some of his statistics. But really, that is another scenario. So the question we need to be asking is, what are those nudges we need to be putting in place? And those nudges can both be incentives on the business side. They can also be public policies. There are lots of ways you can nudge to ensure that we end up on that side of the equation as opposed to the free-for-all, you know, everyone has their own autonomous vehicle and no one has to drive it anymore, so our relationship with sitting in traffic changes, so to speak. But then that becomes a very dystopian kind of transport future. What I find really interesting is that you said something now that is quite similar to what you said before about Uber. You said at a certain point, the more negative side of Uber was that there were more cars instead of less, and that they should have thought about collaborating with um, public transportation. And now here you say the innovation will be more positive if it's about autonomous electric and shared cars together. Could we say that a really big part of keeping innovation positive has to do with collaborations between networks of players that could somehow help each other find a balance, like Uber and, and public transportation, for instance. Yes, I love that you bring this up. You put it very, very well. I think that when we try to innovate, when a company or a person or anything, any entity actually, when you try to innovate in isolation or innovate in a silo, you may get something that is narrowly very useful, but doesn't take into account the broader environment within which you work. But also, this is where I think it gets really interesting. When you do something in a silo, you also miss external ideas and stimuli that could make your innovation all the better. So this is where, candidly, 10 years later, Uber and Lyft are both working with public transportation authorities far more than they would have a decade ago. Both because, you know, a decade ago in most jurisdictions, these were not deemed to be companies or service providers that were authorized to operate, right? Now they have received legitimacy. Obviously, they've both gone public. They have proven that people like this business model. So now they have, in their mind, more latitude to work with transit authorities. I so wish that it would have been possible 10 years ago for them to have worked together much more closely because when you think about the benefits, particularly from a public transit perspective of you want to get everyone in your city from where they are to where they need to be and public transit doesn't go everywhere. So you still need last mile delivery. You still need some connectivity between locations. That's what Uber and Lyft are really good at doing. If you could have built a system that were more integrated, a lot of the problems that both public transit and Uber and Lyft are facing today would have been mitigated, if not solved outright. So yes, and I think the more collaboration and, and networks, if you will, of stakeholders and perspectives that can work together, the better. In particular, though, I would say there has always been, or I think almost always, this tension between the public and private sector. So business and then policymakers. And business feeling like public policy is just trying to clip their wings or prevent them from doing what would be really helpful to do. And you know, policymakers sometimes feeling like business is just running wild and you know they're doing things without keeping the broader public interest in mind. And these are natural tensions. But I think more and more as we look, particularly looking at something as access over ownership, if everyone in a city is going to be accessing more services as opposed to owning them outright, then there's a much closer convergence of a city's goals to help people live better, whoever you are, wherever you are in the city, and businesses' goals to expand access. So I look at this as far more opportunity to collaborate and to collaborate earlier than you might have in the past. And it also starts to bring in some of those earlier tensions we were talking about, about, you know, business primarily looks at individuals first. Public policy by its nature often looks at the community, the public good, the collective, and that those needs first. This also shows a kind of con potentially a congruence of those two perspectives. Yeah, sure. But when you, you say that the public looks more at the collective, it's true. 
But I think that the businesses might also think, now if we, we start to collaborate more with the public instances, will this not make everything more slow? There will be a lot more processes and, and like business wants to move fast and public policy wants to move better, I don't know. <laughs> do, do you think that a lot of companies will be afraid of that? I love this because I'm sort of known for bridging between the public and private sector. And so I could not agree more with what you just said. And and it is true. The policy world as a whole is not particularly, relatively speaking, it's not particularly nimble or fast or, you know, quick to respond or quick to change. And so absolutely, this is also a shout out for the policymaking world, which is that it is absolutely in need of an ecosystem shift as well. And not that policy ever becomes necessarily as fast as business, because when you think about it, policy reform or legal reform or even, you know, constitutional reform at the at the furthest end of the spectrum, policy is always a lagging indicator. Policy changes when it has become so clear that the values and the norms and the expectations of the public have changed so much that you have to change the rules by which we operate. So that's nothing new, but it's designed to be a lagging indicator. The challenge we face today is that the pace at which new technologies are evolving and the pace at which policy is evolving, that gap is getting wider and wider. So what we're looking at, and this is probably a whole other call, which would be, you know, how is the role of public policy evolving vis-a-vis innovation in today's economy. That is a very rich, deep subject to dive into. But policymakers around the world are also realizing that if they want to retain their legitimacy and relevance and actually their ability to protect the public good, they have to change some of their systems and procedures as well. It's not super sophisticated at this point in time, but rather than expecting that a law, that you're going to establish a law and that law is going to last for the next 50 years, we need to be looking at slightly more iterative, adaptive policy regimes, including getting the public itself more involved in that process. Where, you know, you've heard about participatory democracy and collaborative forms of governance and self-governance. There's a role for that there now, largely driven by new technologies that allow people to participate in more ways that wasn't there 50 years ago when we assumed that all policy needed to be made in a top-down kind of fashion. So yes, wake-up call for policymakers, but for businesses to understand that there is a convergence of interests, what policymakers want and what business want, which is responsible, sustainable, ethical businesses built for the long term, but that both of them require a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more reaching into the other's um, arena than they would have in the past. Thanks, that's um, really interesting. Um, So we talked a lot about positive innovation, and I'm sure that many of our listeners are really interested in positive innovation and that they want to do it. But I'm sure also that they will think something like it's difficult enough to keep reinventing ourselves to stay relevant as we speak, but doing so in a manner that's positive for everyone is almost impossible. What would you answer them if they would say that to you? Yeah, I have empathy for that sense of it's enough to just keep our head above water day to day. I would also say this, and you know, I would say this to myself as well, I would say this to all of us. As we look around the world and we look in our communities and we look at the challenges facing humanity, you know, and whether that's climate change, whether that's intolerance, you know, to those who say it's just difficult enough, I mean, with all due respect, we're not challenging ourselves enough. We're not holding ourselves to the standards by which humanity deserves to be measured. We're not really thinking boldly enough about what's possible. Part of my challenge here is that I believe that to some degree, what we're doing today, and again, this is business, this is society, this is education, you know, this, this shows up in many different ways. We're holding on almost desperately to models that are outdated. And we're just hoping that somehow either things will go back to where, how they used to be, which I think many of us are realizing that's not going to happen, but that somehow we're going to be able to just tweak these models enough so that they'll continue to function okay. 
take the example of education. You know, and I've spent more than my fair share of time getting degrees and in traditional education systems, and I do understand the value, absolutely the value of education. But when we look at how we learn, and you know, we're still taught to study for the test, to worry about grades, but also that if you study hard and get good grades and go to college, you'll be guaranteed of a good job. All of those models were built and designed for the first industrial revolution when we needed people to work in factories or go to war. They're very poor fits for the 21st century or for the fourth industrial revolution. Yet we're clinging onto these models as if like they have to just keep working. All we need to do is update them. Whereas I look at this and say, what would it look like to create an entirely different system, not just of education, but of learning and lifelong learning? You know, as education isn't something you do early in your life and then you're done. Education and learning will never stop, but we haven't built the model for that to continue to exist and be accepted and used. And so for those people who say we're struggling to just keep up, I'm saying what we're not doing enough of is thinking about holistic reform of the models themselves. On those days when you feel frustrated, I say that's what's actually a really inspiring thing to think about. And then figure out how can you go start tipping those needles in those new directions from a much broader sense of system change as opposed to tinkering with the model that you're living and working in right now, which isn't doing very well. True. Actually, if we strip this conversation down to its bare essentials, the real question that we should ask ourselves is probably, are we making any progress? Is the human race progressing? And what is the role that companies are playing in that? Like Peter Diamandis, for instance, is convinced that we are making indeed great progress. He often talks about how we are more prosperous than ever, how mortality rates have dropped. Um, how we're making progress in the realm of uh, food scarcity and hunger. And that's all very true. But on the other hand, there's also, like you, you said, um, there's climate change, there's an aging workforce, there's population growth, resource scarcity, inequality, growing water problem. So there's many, many, many more problems. So how do you see this? Yeah, it's a wonderful question again. Your, all of your questions are great. Um, and it's funny, coincidentally, my husband and Peter were just in touch. So um, I followed Peter's work for quite some time. So I'm going to answer it with a different kind of question. Are we making any progress against what metric? That's the missing link for me. So are we making progress when we look at overall human well-being and particularly human health? Then absolutely, yes. We are healthier, living longer, you know, have access to better healthcare, more medicines, etc. With regards to the global human well-being and our ability to live, yes. Are we making any progress vis-a-vis -vis our relative position on this planet? Well, that depends, right? If you're a member of the emerging middle class, your answer is yes. If you're a member of a class who is slated to lose their job to automation or somebody who has been living in a high-income economy that now feels threatened by a range of forces, whether it's trade or automation or immigration or whatever, then maybe not or less so. You know, you're going to feel differently about that question. Um, I do think that if we say, are we making any progress against Mother Nature or the Earth's ability to thrive, then I would say not very well. But it's, are we making progress against according to whose perspective or against which metric. And I don't mean to be dodging the question in any way. I mean to be saying so much depends on whose perspective we're looking through and whose shoes we're standing in. Now, I tend to be, you know, an optimist because I really don't like the alternative. So overall, there's no question that we've made incredible strides as humankind and you know innovation and what we're able to do is that guaranteed to continue throughout history absolutely not you know are there unintended consequences and downsides to yes there have been lots of improvements but they haven't come at zero cost and so how we do that calculus is really shifting so yes we are making progress but we need to be asking a more nuanced specific question Somebody like Al Gore, 
who said, just take the issue of climate change. We've got Al Gore and we've got Greta Thunberg and we've got some, you know, a really diverse group of leaders in terms of their demographics or, you know, how they're engaging. But when Al Gore said, he's right, climate change is the biggest business opportunity of our lifetime. Climate change isn't something that somehow is anti-business. If we could shift that lens and start asking questions about progress from more of that kind of perspective, then we start realizing okay, we're making some progress, but there's a lot more we need to be making, but that our interests aren't as out of alignment as one might think. Even though we are answering the question from different perspectives, those perspectives don't have to be at odds with one another. Actually, if you look at at business innovation in China, a lot of these companies over there are are driven by actual big problems like environmental problems that are are huge over there and the aging population and they innovate because they have to and there's of course there's business behind it like there are a lot of electrical cars like Neo and Geely but they innovate because they have to and that's probably why at this point that China is progressing so fast and so much because they have to and like you say there's a, a real business behind that Absolutely. And this is where, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Because you're right, China is leapfrogging other countries when it comes to things like business solutions for climate change, because they're already living in a world where you don't let your kids play outside, where the air quality each day is, you know, in emergency mode. So for them, it's already a reality, which is, you know, the downside of that double-edged sword. But then the upside is that for China, they're going to be world leaders. They already are becoming very quickly world leaders when it comes to a lot of these um, environmentally focused technologies and solutions. I really wish that more people in more places that haven't reached the crisis point that China is in around the environment would recognize that you can still innovate, you can still do all of this, and you can avoid that crisis component. Although some people might say that we've already reached a crisis climate globally that we can't turn back from. I would also say that, you know, insofar as you're still breathing air that you can go outside in, you you don't want to get to the point that China's in. You actually want to create Mm -hmm. those solutions in advance of ever reaching that point. Absolutely. If you could give one piece of advice to companies about positive innovation, what would you tell them? Oh, my goodness. I think it goes back to my original nugget of this conversation, which is... When you think about positive innovation, run yourself through the paces. Be the best leader that you can be in terms of responsibility, accountability, ethos, and ethics. When you think about the positive innovation, be bold and think about what are the unintended consequences of that innovation and go one step further to mitigate those blind spots. Because I think coming up with ideas for positive innovation isn't that difficult. The hard part is coming up with positive innovation that has zero to very few negative externalities. And so run yourself through more paces than you might otherwise and encourage your team to do the same. Okay, thanks. Um, That's it for today, actually. Thank you so much for joining us on the NextWorks Innovation Talks, April. I really enjoyed talking to you. My pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.